Amen. Wow, I forgot how much I missed that song. It's a good reminder. Uh, it's actually been the topic of conversation in some of my circles this week, uh, just talking about worship, what worship is, what worship isn't. And uh, it's worth remembering this morning that uh, worship is so many things, so much more than what we do here. Uh, but worship uh, is, in a sense, our response to God for all that God has done for us. And as we are singing this morning, I'm just reminded of God's strength and faithfulness in the midst of difficult times, going through difficult things, having a rough week. I'm just reminded, like, you know, when things are hard, when you're going through things big, small, stressful, whatever, it's just in a weird way, I'm always grateful that it reminds me just how out of control life is just how much control I don't have, but I know the one who is in control. I know the one who, who is there and who's, who is holding me when I can't hardly hold myself. And this morning, I'm just grateful. I'm grateful that God is our hope. He's our strength. He's our savior. He's our deliverer. And he is there. He draws near when things are hard. He, he's there when things are great, but I just have been reminded this week that when things are hard, when you just feel like, okay, Lord, I can't do this. He's like, I know, <laughs> I know, and I'm here. Thank you for recognizing here I am. And so as we go to a time of prayer, a corporate prayer together as a body, I just want to remind you that you are invited to respond to the greatness of our God who loves you. He is here. He's been here. He's here waiting for us. He's walking with you. He's helping you with things even when you don't see it or realize it or notice it. He's holding you up when you don't have the strength to hold yourself up. He's here. He's present. I believe he wants to show us what he's doing, what he's saying, how he's moving, and he just is asking us to be open and to respond. And so let's respond to our Lord, our Savior, this morning. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for so many things. This morning, I just appreciate the reminder that. You, God, creator, maker of heaven and earth. You are holy. You are almighty. You are so much greater and bigger than our minds could possibly fathom. It's worth remembering this morning just how small we are and just how great and big and mighty you are. You are the very life. That has been given to us. You are the breath, the air that we breathe. God, you are sustainer. You are creator. You are savior. You are deliverer. You are almighty. You are worthy as we have been reminded this morning of our worship, of our praise. And we ought to all cry out in some way in response, praising you, God almighty. And yet, Lord, I'm humbled and overwhelmed at knowing and, and acknowledging all of this, 
and remembering that it's in these sweet moments where we come, where we are open, where we are here together, open before you, and I'm reminded of your sweet, holy presence that draws near, that leans in, that invites us. And we are reminded God, that there is so much that goes on in this world, in our lives, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our families. There are so many things that go on that we can't control. And it's difficult to accept how little control we actually have over things. And yet it is good It is necessary. It is helpful for us to remember that there are so many things we can't do. But you, God, you are capable of doing it all. There's nothing you can't do. When we are open, when we are receptive, when we are willing, God, there's nothing you can't or won't do to demonstrate your love, your mercy, your forgiveness, your goodness, your saving grace. It's always available, and we are grateful for that reminder again this morning. God, I pray that each person who is here that they would be able to offer them whole selves up to you, God. I pray that we would be completely open to you this morning. I pray, God, that, that we wouldn't hold anything back, that we would be honest about where we are, about what's going on in our heart and around us, May we open ourselves up to your presence, to the work that you are accomplishing, to all that you want to do, and to all that you are inviting us to be a part of. God, I pray that we wouldn't miss it. I pray that we would create time to be still, to be open, to be aware, to be receptive. May we shut out all of the noise. May we get rid of what distracts us from you and your presence here and now. God, we thank you for never giving up on us. Thank you, God, that even when we make a mess of things, you don't give up. You don't walk away. You're here. God, may we come back to you. May we return to you once again. May we turn our hearts towards you. God, would you speak to us today? God, I pray that you would anoint Nikki and the words that she has so carefully prepared, the words that you have given her, the message that you have given her, you have placed in her heart, you've given her the boldness to preach. God, I pray that you would use her, anoint her, help her 
God, to boldly preach a word to us today. May we be open. May we be willing to hear and to receive and to respond. Here I am, Lord. Here we are. Speak to us, O God. We love you. We thank you for your goodness and your love. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, it's always a joy and a privilege when Nikki is able to prepare a message for us and to preach. And so she has been preparing this one for a few months now. Uh, we've been talking about this message, and I'm very much looking forward to it. So um, bring it, Nikki. Good morning. Wow, Pastor Nicole really priming the pump for the message this morning. You don't even know, but you will. That was good. Um, before I forget, I want to just uh, tell you about something that's in your bulletin this morning. You may have already noticed. You may not have. This is just an experiment, something we're trying out. This is a copy of the outline for the sermon. So this was something that one of my professors mentioned. Of course, I've seen it done before. This is just a guide to help if anyone is a visual learner. It can help to have an outline that you can just visually follow along. I have a couple of slides, but not a ton. So this is just here as an option, a resource. You don't have to use it. In fact, if it's going to be a distraction for you, I would ask you, don't use it. But if you want to, you can take it home as well. So you have this copy. You might notice there's some blanks in here that you can fill in. If you're a kinesthetic learner, that might be helpful for you. If you want to keep a copy of the outline, but filling out blanks is not your thing, come and talk to me after. I'll help you fill in those blanks, and you can take that home. But don't feel like you have to. It's not going to offend me if you recycle it. Okay, just don't throw it in the trash. Okay, just recycle it. It's all good. All right, so I just wanted to let you know about that. I'm really so excited to be here this morning. I believe that God has something he wants to speak to us. That's why I'm here. I wouldn't be here if I didn't think that God was going to speak to us. Um, this is a sermon that I've been excited to preach for a long time. And I always thought it would be my first sermon, actually, because it's just something I, a passage that when I studied it, it really opened up for me. And it's really exciting. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I can't talk right now. Okay, I love you. Bye. Wrong number. Don't you hate being interrupted? So it's the worst, right? Interruptions, by definition, are unexpected, and they're unplanned. I think we really like to have a plan, and we like to be in control. But then all of a sudden, an interruption comes, and it reminds us that we're not in control. Not a good reminder. Sometimes interruptions can be a good thing, that something positive comes out of it. But I think that initial feeling of being interrupted is always a little bit unpleasant. It's often frustrating and annoying. So our passage today is about an interruption. There's this woman. She's trying to do a necessary errand. And there's this weird guy that just shows up. He starts chatting her up. Sheesh. Am I right, ladies? Okay. But this passage is traditionally known as the woman at the well. So this unnamed Samaritan woman is trying to do her daily chore of gathering water from the well. It's probably hot. She's probably tired. 
And here's Jesus sitting in her way, just not a care in the world, shooting the breeze. Then it gets a little weird. Then, to be honest, it gets really weird. But we're going to read it, so I won't, I won't spoil it for you too much. This is from John chapter 4, so I'm not going to read the entire story. It's actually quite long. So what's happening here is Jesus is traveling. He stops to rest near a Samaritan town at Jacob's well. While he's there, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water, like I said, and Jesus asks her for a drink. This is surprising for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that men in this culture don't speak to women in public, especially a woman that they don't know. So it's highly unconventional. So she responds in a surprised way, and she expresses that, emphasizing both her gender and that they have a racial difference going on. So that's where we're picking up in the story. So if you wouldn't mind, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're in John chapter 4, as I said, starting in verse 10. It says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. That was long, I'm sorry. <laughs> you can be seated. So what I first want to point out is that John specifically, when he's setting the scene for this story at the open of the chapter, he tells us the time of day. It seems like a really odd detail to include. It's recorded in the original language as the 12th hour. It's usually translated as noon or around noon. So what we do know is that this is the hottest part of the day in the Middle East where this story takes place. So I have a couple of slides for you. Oh, how to worship in the spirit of truth. 
So this is the area where they are. This was taken in 2003, so just pretend like those buildings aren't there. But this just gives you an idea of the landscape. So it's a very dry area. This is the plain of Shechem. I think I'm saying that correctly. So these are some photos that were taken in the early 1900s of Jacob's well. So what I want you to notice from these pictures, this is, I just think is super fascinating. Um, first of all, this doesn't look like what we would probably picture in our mind when we think of a well. So I have a well in my backyard because my house is just that old. But it looks nothing like this. So this is a very different kind of well. This is a very isolated area. So we might imagine that somebody would just kind of step out of their house or go to the center of town. This is actually quite a journey to go to the well. It is not close to the village or the towns. So it's kind of isolated. It's Goes, you have to go down some steps to get down to where it is. There's another picture. Oh, go back. Sorry. So I don't know if you guys can see this very well, but this woman in the foreground has a clay jar on her head. You might be able to make that out. So that is actually how the women would transport water to and from the well. That's how they did it in the early 1900s, and that's how they did it back in Jesus' day. So... This is interesting because it's one thing to carry a heavy clay jar on your head all the way to the well, an even heavier jar now full of water on your head all the way back. It's another thing to do that in the heat of the day. It's also an added risk to go alone because if something did happen to you, then there's nobody to call for help. So normally the women would travel to the well together in groups in the coolest part of the day, usually in the morning or in the evening. This is just for safety. The well is also a like kind of a regular place for travelers to stop. Don't leave that up anymore. Um, just like Jesus did, it's a place kind of like what we would do on a road trip, stop at a gas station to get gas. When people are traveling on foot, they need water. So they're going to stop at the well. That's going to be any kinds of people, criminals, zealots, soldiers, it certainly would not be safe to go alone most of the time, and especially for a woman. So I think, personally, John isn't going to include an arbitrary detail like the time of day unless it's important to the story. He is setting the scene so that the original readers would naturally have some questions when the Samaritan woman comes on the scene. So when she shows up, they're already like, hang on, what is she doing? Why is she gathering water in the middle of the day? Like, this is weird. What's her story? So he does kind of answer those questions later in the dialogue, but I want you to have this in your mind because this is really important, and I think he's assuming that you know this. The point that he's making is that she's avoiding people. She's avoiding her community, and she's not participating in regular community life. She's even risking her comfort and her safety to avoid running into somebody. As an introvert, I can sympathize. But we need to understand that in the society in which she lived, this was neither practical nor safe. So this is not to judge or demonize her. I think it's actually really important to the story, and that's why John is making sure that we recognize this. So that being said, imagine her frustration when she goes to all this trouble to avoid seeing people, gets to the well, and here's Jesus sitting on the well. So the original language says that he was sitting on the well. The well has a cover to protect debris from getting in it. He is right in her way. So, sorry, <laughs> I lost my place. 
it's worth noting that there is some disagreement, right, about her tone. So scholars disagree on whether she's being sarcastic or if she's just being naive. Personally, I don't think she's that dumb. I mean, I don't really think that she doesn't understand how water works. So she seems to be being contentious. The context highly suggests it. She's also bringing up a lot of controversial subjects. She keeps drawing attention to the differences between them, the tensions between their people. And um, if you think about it, she kind of brings up two things that even we kind of commonly say when you're first meeting someone, just a general rule if you want to get along, don't bring up what? Religion and politics. Two things she goes right. She goes right to it. She also says to Jesus at one point, which we read, do you think you're greater than our father, Jacob? Sounds like a challenge. But if you didn't know, that's also a double zinger because any Jew, or most Jews, I should say, would be highly offended at her claiming our father about Jacob because she's a Samaritan. And if you didn't know, Samaritans are considered illegitimate children of Jacob because they are the product of intermarrying, which is a forbidden practice. So while they are descendants of Jacob, they, like I said, are considered illegitimate. So saying our father Jacob to a Jew is like asking for a fight. So it's important to note here, though, that in spite of what I would say her obvious prickliness, the text doesn't actually speak to her motivation. Why is she being prickly? Is she offended that he's talking to her? Like I said, that's not normal behavior. One scholar I love, Kenneth Bailey, said that Jesus' behavior could be read as flirtatious. She could have been offended. Is she annoyed? He's in her way. He's interrupting her. Why are you talking to me? Why are you asking me for a favor? Maybe she's just grumpy. I don't know. But actually, I'm going to propose that something that John reveals to us in the dialogue might give us a clue at what's going on here. So I will say some scholars tried to diminish this aspect of the story because it does put a potential emphasis on her morality that at times has been abused. However, I think the cultural evidence is too strong to ignore. So Jesus does tell us, as we read in verse 18, that she kind of has a checkered past when it comes to men. So most commentators also will acknowledge that most of the power in marriage, relationships, and divorce was held by men. So that means that the ability to initiate and dissolve either a sexual or romantic relationship was almost exclusively held by men. So that introduces the possibility of serial rejection. In other words, this woman might have been dumped five times. That sounds harsh even in our context. Imagine what it would have been like in hers. She lives in a patriarchal society. Women need men for security. They don't have the ability to provide for or protect themselves. That is a very sad story. I love how N.T. Wright points out, and he says it like this, we don't know whether she was equally sinned against as sinning. It's entirely possible, and in my opinion, very plausible, that this woman disliked and distrusted men in general, and she probably had good reason to. But if that is the case, we should notice that Jesus responds with the very necessary grace and patience to slowly break through her emotional walls and calmly refuses to be provoked. So this is an aside, but I could not say, I think that we have something that we could learn from Jesus here. Because there's something to be said about getting sucked into heated debates, either online or in person, without caring about the other person or where they're coming from. I could say a lot more about that. That would be a different sermon. But 
I really think this is a beautiful example of how to respond to people, even when they're being a little prickly. So that being said, it still seems weird, right? Jesus gets abruptly personal in verse 16. Like, he suddenly seems like he's changing the subject. Go get your husband. Why does he do that? I think we have to keep reading to find out. But I love how uh, Kenneth Bailey describes her response when she says, I have no husband. He says, it's a common defense mechanism. Confronted with sin, try withholding information. She's not the last to choose this option. I think we've all been guilty of that before. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't let up. And instead of insulting her by calling her a liar, he says she is telling the truth. But he proceeds to point out the aspect that she neglected. Indeed, technically you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with now, not your husband. So his response could actually be read in a number of ways. The Greek word that is translated in our Bibles as husband is actually the word for man. Usually this word would be translated husband based on context. There actually is no Greek word for husband. However, the context in this passage is a little vague, so it's unclear. You could read this as, you've been with five different men. Again, I'm going to emphasize the fact that the power to initiate those types of relationships is mostly held by men. The other thing is that when Jesus says the man you have now is not your husband, you could read that as him implying that this man is the husband of somebody else. And one commentator pointed out that if that is the case, it could speak to her absolute desperation. At this point, if this woman's been dumped five times, and like I said, she lives in a society where she needs a man to protect and provide for her. She might be desperate enough even to be in a relationship with someone else's husband. This is all possible, but it's not really the point. What we do know and what John does make clear is that this woman has a messy relationship with men. And while it may seem cruel or judgmental for Jesus to point that out and to bring up her at the very least precarious situation, I think it's actually the most loving thing he could do. We're going to talk about that more later, but for now, I want to keep moving through the text. So this woman is amazing, absolute pro at deflection. I'm going to think that she has had some practice. So I think it's interesting. Jesus, to use a poker analogy, he even lays his cards out on the table, reveals that he has a superior hand because he tells her, I already know what you're trying to hide. And yet she still tries to bluff and divert. So N.T. Wright does acknowledge her response as relatable, though. I love how he says, put your finger on the sore spot, and people will at once start talking about something else. The best subject for distracting attention from morality is, of course, religion. It's a great quote. So the question she brings up is the quintessential divide between Jews and Samaritans in their day. So it's the proper location for the temple. She's asking him, where do you say we should worship? On Mount Gerizim, as my people say, or in Jerusalem, as your people say? It could be read as, I would argue, another attempt to remind Jesus, we're not friends, we're enemies. We're different. But, as we might have guessed, Jesus is impossible to deter or stump, and he does this really brilliant thing where he manages to actually address the issue that she brought up while still bringing the conversation back to what he wants to be talking about, her. So, I'm a worship leader, right? I had to preach a sermon on worship at some point. It was bound to happen. Some of you might be scratching your heads being like, what in the world does this sermon have to do with worship? Well, I'm going to tell you it's absolutely everything. I believe 
that the thing that Jesus is about to say to her in this passage about worship is actually the pinnacle of everything that he's trying to teach her and us. So if you haven't heard anything else I've said this morning, start listening now, because this is going to be really, really good, I promise. Jesus tells the woman, the true worshipers will worship in the Spirit and in truth. So he even goes as far as to say, these are the worshipers that my Father seeks. I used to really struggle with this verse because I found it vague and confusing. What does that even mean? Like, could you be more detailed, Jesus? Can you give me some specifics? I need to know what that actually means. I'm going to try to help you break it down because it's actually really, really awesome. So the word for spirit that he uses here is a word we've talked about before a lot, actually. In the Greek, it's the word pneuma or breath. So this is nothing new, an absolutely familiar concept concept for Jews and Samaritans, and I would argue it should be for Christians as well. However, Jesus does introduce a new concept to her. He says we can worship God anywhere because of the Spirit. So the way the New Testament writers go on to kind of clarify this is they say that because the Spirit dwells in us, we have become the temple. So this is unimaginable for anyone in the first century because every religion had temples, and that is a sacred place where you perform your worship. The idea of being able to worship and commune with God anywhere, completely unheard of. That's crazy talk. Her response actually tells us that she didn't understand because the next thing that she says to Jesus is, oh, I know the Messiah is going to come and he's going to explain everything to us. Clearly, she didn't get it. And I think this is what she was talking about, because why would she? She has no context for what he's talking about here. Ironically, what he meant when he said truth, I think she did understand. And I say that's ironic because I think that's the part that we most misunderstand. The word translated truth is an interesting one. It is actually used throughout the Gospel of John in connection with the Spirit. So you might recognize the phrase, the Spirit of Truth. Right? John uses this phrase repeatedly throughout his gospel. It's the same word. But I would argue the English word truth is a little misleading. At best, it's vague and it's lacking the nuance of the original term. The word used here is the Greek word aletheia. It literally means unconcealedness. Now you can see why they call it truth, because that's a really clunky word. But I would argue I don't think truth really captures the meaning very well. I would argue the Greek word is a little bit more like honesty. So now you can see a correlation between the concepts of honesty and truth, right? They're, that makes sense. However, they aren't exactly the same. I think the problem is, is that we, especially as Westerners, when we think of truth, we think of rational truth. We think of something that involves the mind. That's not what this Greek word is talking about. There is a Greek word for rational truth. That's not this word. It's variously translated as disclosure, revealing, or unclosedness, right, <laughs> or openness. Another favorite of mine is sincerity. So for the purposes of this sermon, I want us to think about truth or aletheia as honesty and sincerity. Now, I want you to think about the whole story with this definition of truth in your mind, because I think it's going to change how you see this entire interaction, Okay. This woman is clearly avoiding people. Jesus goes out of his way to meet her. As soon as he exposes her secrets, she changes the subject. Divert. 
Jesus answers the question that she asked, but he also does this beautiful thing where he answers like the real issue that's going on in her heart. What he is essentially telling her is if you want to worship God, it's not about the physical location, but the posture of your heart. You need to stop hiding. Be your true self before God. So I believe that Jesus was talking to her about shame. This is something we've all felt. It's for some of us, it's a very present reality. It's part of the human experience. But this idea of Aletheia really brings me back to the garden. Adam and Eve, they sinned and they felt shame. The first time shame was ever felt. And what did they immediately do? Hide. When they felt ashamed, they hid. And that's what every person who's ever felt ashamed ever since has always done. That's what we do. And that's what this woman did. She felt ashamed because of things that she had done and things that had been done to her. And she decided to hide. But Jesus says that he's coming to change all of that. The time has come for the true worshipers to come naked, in a sense, before God. Unconcealed. We're going back to the garden. Now, I'm speaking spiritually here, so please don't send me any messages. Spiritually unconcealed. Keep your clothes. I want you to think about the Psalms, though, okay? The worship book of the Bible. I think Aletheia is going to help us better understand what's going on there. So if you go to the Psalms expecting rational theological truth, I think you are going to come away disappointed, probably even disturbed. The ancient Israelites appeared to have an understanding of Aletheia in worship that I believe has since been lost. Rather than true theological statements, you will find raw, honest, and messy, intense emotions. Fear, despair, anger, rage, desperation, vengeance, hopelessness. If I had to sum up the Psalms, I would do it like this. Unhindered, authentic, human emotion. But we can't be our true, authentic selves before God if we are withholding our emotions. Some of you are getting really uncomfortable right now. But the truth is, whatever we're feeling, we need to come to God in honesty and just be sincere. That's what he wants. That's true worship. Whether it's in music or singing or anything else, worship is a lifestyle. It's how we live but that does include what we do here on a Sunday morning. The truth is, and some of you really aren't going to like this, emotions are a part of biblical worship. I'm not judging or commenting on how you express those emotions. The only one who's going to know if you're practicing true Aletheia is you and God. But you can't kid yourself. You either are fully unconcealed or you're holding something back. There's only two options. But the way that God defines worship is being completely honest, sincere, open, exposed. That means everything. Emotions are part of worship because they are part of who we are as human beings. So remember how I said that the spirit of truth is the same word in Greek. So I want you to play that back. The spirit of the Holy Spirit is most identified in the Gospel of John 
as the spirit of Aletheia. Or as I like to say, the spirit of sincerity. This is the work of the spirit in and through us. That's literally what he does. If we let him move in our lives, he will produce sincerity. So if you want to worship God this morning, the truth is it's time to stop hiding, to stop holding back, stop letting shame have the final word over you. Jesus is offering you the freedom of true worship in the spirit and Aletheia. You can be real with God. He's not asking us to be perfect religious people. He wants you to be you, the real, raw, honest you. The story doesn't end there. Their conversation continues. Like I said, she asks him, says that the Messiah is going to come, and Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah. This is where we're going to jump back in, in verse 28. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. I'll point out that the reason I think she said he told me everything I ever did, even though he didn't literally do that, is because he saw her. Like he looked at her and he saw what she was hiding and he called her out. It's like she's recognizing he knew, he saw everything. But here's the interesting thing. Did you notice this? In verse 28, it says she left her water jar. Her whole reason for being there. I mean, she carried it all the way there. That thing is heavy. The very task she was performing when she was interrupted, all this talk about water, you guys, sorry. Thank you. I didn't leave my, I left my water bottle at home. So I was just in spirit with her. She was literally interrupted from this task. That's what she was doing was the water jar, filling the water jar, her whole purpose. But where did she run? This is interesting. To her community. She ran to her people, the same people she was hiding from, the same people she was avoiding. She was risking herself, her own safety, just to avoid seeing these people. She literally ran to them. Because Aletheia extends to how you interact with your community. I believe that is corporate worship. Think about it. Now, I'm not saying you can't have boundaries or privacy, but I am saying that you should be trusting some people in this room with the real you. You shouldn't feel like you need to put on a mask or a pretense or be fake here. You should be willing to open up about what's really going on in your heart and in your life with someone in your faith community. Has this been bothering you guys? It's been here, but I've totally refused to acknowledge it. It's annoying, right? That's what we're like. We know that something's there. People can tell. They might not know what it is, but they know you're hiding something. But we refuse to acknowledge it. Hey, we'll talk about religion, politics, sexism, racism, anything but that. 
It's time to tell your story. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Open yourself up before God and your brothers and your sisters. That's true worship. There's a flip side to this as well. Because I think we have a responsibility. How do we respond when somebody in our midst is clearly struggling to open up? I think we need to learn from Jesus' example in this story. I think we need to lovingly refuse to be distracted, goaded, or avoided, and insist on freeing our brothers and sisters from their shame. We need to love them so much that we cannot stand to leave them there. Sometimes, and you guys, I'm really guilty of this because I hate conflict, but we often, we feel like we should avoid uncomfortable topics. We don't want to cross the line. We don't want to upset anybody. But honestly, and again, I'm super guilty of this. I think most of the time it's a selfish excuse for our own comfort. I'm preaching to myself right now. I'm the one who's uncomfortable. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want you to be mad at me. I don't want to have a conflict. That's not loving. Because when we refuse to ask, it's like we're saying, I don't want to know. You probably should keep that hidden. It's probably really bad. Ignoring the problem wasn't good enough for Jesus. It shouldn't be good enough for us. I'll be the first to say this requires discernment, patience, and gentleness. I would say just keep making yourself available. Be a safe place. Keep asking, how are you really doing? Do you want to talk about it? Now, if they say no, obviously we're not going to force them. We have to accept that, but we should keep showing up. Keep loving them, earning their trust. Model vulnerability. Keep asking. Because as soon as you stop asking, you give the devil the opportunity to whisper in their ear, you see, you were right not to trust them. They didn't really want to know. I have been guilty of this myself. It's tempting to give up. Hey, you know what? If they don't want to experience the freedom that grace can bring, that's their decision. I'm tired of trying. I don't want to be pushy. But Jesus didn't do that. Even when she was prickly. Don't give up. Just keep loving them and be a safe place. In John 13, he said that we are to be known by our love for one another. This is a famous verse. And I would say, what better way to be known for radical love than to practice radical honesty and openness? If we can be real with each other with all of our most secret, embarrassing, shameful things, and we still receive each other with love and grace, that's powerful. That's what Jesus came to do. So there's one thing I want to add, and then I'm going to close. I'm going to invite Parker and Kevin to come for our closing song. But don't miss this, because if we start exposing our sin and our flaws and everything that makes us ashamed, and we stop there, let me ask you, do you think we're going to end up with a super harmonious, God-glorifying community? Probably not. But some Christians do stop here. I've been in communities where they tell you all about depravity and your sin, and there's nothing you can do about it, and it's not really your fault, but hey, guess what? Grace! 
You have the righteousness of Christ. You don't have to earn it. And you're going to feel better for a while. But honestly, the truth is, there's something deep within us that is bothered by sin. Friends, it's the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul also talks about worship in Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read this verse 1 and 2. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy sorry, and pleasing to God. This is do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The end result of true worship and the culmination of the work of the spirit of Aletheia is holiness. It is being perfected in the image of Christ. It's learning to walk in the Spirit, to produce the fruit of the Spirit, to love God and others. That's what the Spirit of Aletheia does. I know this is a lot to take in. It's scary to be vulnerable, and it's hard to trust people. Because I think we've all been burned before. But the truth is, when we hide our sin both what we have done and what's been done to us, we give shame power over us. But when we expose that to the light, we take the power back and that thing starts to shrivel up and die. Let the spirit shine light into the dark, hidden places of your heart. But you have to start somewhere. So I'm going to give you something really practical. Here's my challenge to you this morning, and I want you to just prayerfully consider this. My challenge for you is to take one thing, just one thing this week that you've been hiding because of shame. Big or small, share it with somebody in your faith community. Ask for grace. Do it this week, just one thing. It might be a friend. It could be in your life group or a women's group, a prayer group. It might be Pastor Nicole or myself. Find someone you can trust. I know it's intimidating, but I promise you the freedom you're going to feel when you take back that power from shame, it is so good. It is so worth it. But I'm going to make it even easier because I'm going to give you an opportunity to practice Alethea right now as they say, it's a risk-free trial. Because we're going to practice Aletheia by being open with God in worship right here, right now. This is totally safe because we well know nothing you could say or do could shock Jesus. The truth is he already knows all of your darkest secrets. And guess what? He still loves you. So why not unburden yourself? Just open yourself up before God. So to sum up, this is what I want you to remember. Worshiping in the spirit and in truth is about being open and honest, unconcealed, unhidden. This is true in our relationship with God and our relationship with others. That's how the spirit works in us.
And the result in our lives is holiness. It is becoming like the one we are worshiping. I'm going to pray. Jesus, please help us today the way you helped the Samaritan woman, the way you sought her out. Turn your gaze upon us and expose what we've been hiding. Show us the places that need your healing touch. Shine your light on those hidden things, the things that we're most ashamed of. Give us the courage to open our hearts before you and in our community. Give us the grace to love and embrace others if they come clean around us. May we be known by our love for one another in spite of our brokenness. Break the power of shame and sin in our lives. Purify our hearts. Make us more like you so we can be a light in a dark and dying world. Well, at heart, I'm still just a worship leader. Sometimes these really deep things, I think, can be difficult to explain in a way that really connects. So just to drive it home, I am going to sing it for you. Literally, told Parker this morning, I could not have written a better song for this sermon. I am amazed. When I found it, and she, you're just going to be amazed. It's so good. You didn't even need to listen to my sermon. You could have just listened to this song. But I made you listen to it anyway. Okay, so I'm going to sing it. The words are going to be up on the screen. This is not a song that you probably know, so I don't expect you to sing along. You can if you want. You can remain in your seats. You can stand, kneel, do whatever you want. This is a place of freedom for you to worship. I want you to practice your authentic worship, whatever that looks like for you. But I want you to read and listen. Just soak in it. Just think about it. The reason I have the words, even though I don't expect you to sing, is because I just want you to be able to follow along, because they are so good. If you would, consider opening your hands in a submissive receiving posture. Sing or pray to God. Respond to his spirit right now. Open yourself up before him. Be honest. Be sincere. Be Alethea.
that's Alicia right there. You can see me changing all my stuff. Just open your heart before him this morning. You don't ask for perfection, so I won't even bother pretending. I've been known from the start. Holding secrets is heavy, so I'll tell you them all, Lord, I'm ready. Here's my heart. Just part of me, you want everything. So all of me, I'll bring you all of me. No more hide and seek. Jesus, I'm Purify and 
make me clean till all of me is holy like you Amen. If you would stand, I'll read this benediction. I'm pretty sure that was a record time, you guys. My fastest sermon ever. Come on, I should get a round of applause for that. May you go in a newfound freedom and grace to be uncovered, unhidden, fully exposed, and honest before God. May you worship this week in the spirit and Aletheia, being honest and sincere before God and your community. May you weaken the power that shame has over you and strengthen the reality of grace, knowing that no matter what, you are dearly loved. By opening up before God and others, may you be freed from the bondage of your sin and find victory so that you may be, in the words of the apostle, holy and acceptable to God. Go in peace. You are dismissed.